Chapter 4 of White Dandy, A Horse's Story, a companion book to Black Beauty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Joy, Detroit, Michigan. White Dandy, A Horse's Story, a companion book to Black Beauty, by Velma Cadwell Melville. Chapter 4 that was a severe winter, with plenty of snow and ice after the middle of December. How I did enjoy skimming over the smooth roads, with Master and the light cutter behind me, and the merry jingle of the bells keeping time to my flying footsteps. No matter how great the hurry when we stopped, he never neglected to blanket me. And blanketing with him does not mean merely to throw a robe or blanket loosely over a horse's back, but it means to put a thick covering that buttons or buckles over the chest and far up onto the neck. He grows righteously indignant every time he gets to speaking of people who think their duty done when the back of an animal is protected. While the part containing the lungs, etc., the most delicate, susceptible part of the horse's anatomy, is left exposed to the pitiless blast. My doctor is one of the few sensible, consistent men in the world. Heaven bless him. My heart always aches for the thin, neglected animals many of them without even the pretense of a blanket, that stand for hours shivering in the wind and storm. The man who will button his own warm coat round him and hurry indoors, leaving his helpless servants tied unprotected outside, must have a heart of flint. One day the humane blacksmith came to Master and told him he thought something had ought to be done, that he had just found out that a span of horses had stood in an old shed belonging to a saloon for two whole days and nights the week before, with neither food nor water. The owner was on a protracted spree. Dr. Dick was furious. He never shows anger, excepting under such circumstances as this. He immediately wrote two letters, one to the saloon-keeper and the other to the man who had neglected the team, boldly signing his name and warning them not to repeat or be party to such an offense again. Further than this, between himself and the smith, the sheds and alleys of the little town were closely watched. Several times in daylight, when Master knew that animals had stood for hours unfed and unwatered, he would send Bob to untie them and bring them to our barn. There they would be rubbed and cared for, then returned to their post, and as fast as our blankets grew shabby, he found some poor shivering beast whose back needed them. One day, while Bob was unhitching a sorry-looking horse that had stood unprotected and uncared for for eight hours in a cold wind, the owner rushed out of the saloon and began a tipsy tirade, threatening to have the youth arrested for horse-stealing if he dared to take the creature afoot. Bob came home to report. Dr. Fred bade him mind his own business and let other people's property alone. Dr. Dick told him that so long as a man did not abuse his property, he proposed to let it alone but that when a living creature was being imposed on and abused that he had a right a god-given right to interfere so long as he did not injure the man or make him poorer fred had been drinking a little himself and becoming furious shook his fist in master's face and called him hard names the later without replying turned away and bade bob attend to the work at home supposing that he had won the day fred strutted off to the house no sooner was he indoors than Dr. Dick was striding down the street, and in ten minutes more the half-frozen subject of the trouble was being rubbed and fed in the stall to the right of mine. When the animal was finishing her oats, the owner came swearing in. Expecting something of the kind, Master was on hand. 
I can't begin to tell you what he said to that poor, drunken wretch, but it was a sermon, a temperance lecture, a humane plea, all in one. When the fellow went away, he seemed pretty well sobered and ashamed, and even thanked Master for his kindness, and promised to use the blanket given, and go right straight home. "'Dr. Dick is a queer un,' Bob remarked to a neighbor lad, to whom he related the incident later. "'Mokes folks let on they ain't got no right to meddle with what they call other people's affairs, but I guess it's more cause they're too lazy and cowardly. He says he ain't afeard of devil nor man, but is afeard of doing wrong. Now ain't he queer?' "'I should snicker,' replied the other emphatically, not looking in the least inclined to do so, though. I suppose it was his way of saying yes. "'What do you think?' In spite of all the family could say, Dr. Fred sold Ross toward spring. I shall never forget the look of sadness on the poor fellow's eyes, and the mournful whinny he gave as he turned his head at the barn door and looked back at the empty stall. It happened that the man who bought him came for him when both doctors, the bays, and Bob were away. The little boys were playing in the barn. "'I've come for the old horse I bought,' he said. "'It's that un,' Chet answered, pointing to Ross, so we knew there was no mistake. I called after him as long as I could make him hear. He said he wished he could die, that there was never a moment that he was not in pain. He had straight halt, I think and Dr. Fred said he was getting less worth every day, and after a while would not be fit to travel. Master said better put him out of his misery, but then he belonged to Fred, so that settled it. Before I forget it, I want to tell of a former mate of Ross that he used to talk about. His name was Billy. They belonged to a very passionate man, who, when he became excited, would pound them unmercifully. Some little thing went wrong one day, nothing that the team was to blame for, and the man dealt Billy several blows on the head with inch pin. He staggered, and the man, fearing he had killed him, cooled down and quickly brought some water, giving him some to drink and pouring some on his head. This seemed to help him, and he worked on all day. Ross said the animal woke him, but receiving no answer, only groans and queer sounds. By this time, Billy had knocked down the thin partition between their stalls, and was dealing him some terrible blows with his heels. He crept as far away as he could, and longed for daylight. When it came, Billy was on the floor bruised, exhausted, and almost choked from retching of the halter-strap. As far as he could reach in every direction, things were demolished. The owner seemed very much frightened when he came out, and at once put a boy on Ross to go for a veterinary. The latter, after an examination, asked if any blow had been given on the head. Shamefacedly, the master acknowledged the truth. "'Well,' replied the other, "'if you got any satisfaction out of it at the time, that is all you ever will get. This horse is ruined. There is inflammation of the brain. He may get better, but I think he will have one or two more spells of delirium, and then die. It is something similar to mad staggers.' "'They bled the horse.' I am so glad that the barbarous notion of bloodletting is a thing of the past, and put some cloths wet in cold water on his head. He seemed to get better, and was put to work again. But a week or so later, while ploughing corn in the hot sun, another attack came on, and rearing, he fell backward, narrowly missing, crushing his master. When better again, he was taken some distance from home, and sold. Some two years passed, and Ross himself had changed hands. When one day, as he was standing tied to a post before a country grocery, a weary, shabby-looking horse near him asked if he did not know him. "'It's Billy's voice,' said Ross. "'But this never can be Billy.' 
but it is,' said the other mournfully. "'Or what is left of him? I'm pretty used up.' Then he told how he had passed from hand to hand, and something of his bodily sufferings. He had been experimented on by every quack in the country, but each augmented his torture. "'One man,' he said, "'helped me. He was kind and gentle, never yelled at me. Oh, how I wish they knew how noise hurts my head!' and always gave me water, every hour through the day, and left it where I could reach it at night. Sometimes cold water throws off a fit. He used to work me early and late in the day, but through the hot part kept me in the shade. He also used cold pads on my head and gave me pills of belladonna one or two a day, when my head was hot and my eyes red. He sometimes gave aconite, too, and when I'd been in the sun, glycium was a remedy. I think I might have recovered had he lived— but when we had been there four months he died, and soon I was sold and abused worse than ever. Strange how we dumb brutes can linger and suffer. Ross never saw him again, and often wondered if he still lived. Dr. Fred bought a new horse, a gay fellow, with wicked eyes and a temper to match. His name was Prince. He was well-built, dark iron-gray, about eight years old. "'He's mighty nervous,' commented Bob. "'Just acts as if he expects me to hit or kick him every time I come round him, "'and jerks his head back if I so much as put my hand on the manger. "'He's ugly, too, for he lays his ears back and shows his teeth mighty frequent.' "'Our stalls were so far apart that we could not talk much, "'so I knew almost nothing about him, "'until one morning Bob put me in one sleigh for Master "'and Prince in another for Dr. Fred. "'Such a time as the boy had to get that horse hitched up. He would not stand, and was rearing and jerking the whole time. "'Ain't he a beauty?' cried Dr. Fred proudly. "'Most too much of a horse for you to manage, ain't he, Bob? "'Here, Prince, be quiet, sir.' The animal quieted a little, and looked at him. "'See, he minds me. You must use authority in your tone when—' But the sentence never was finished, for just at that moment the beauty reached out and caught his admirer by the shoulder, lifting him off his feet at the first shake. Then there was a scene. That brute shook his master as a cat would a rat, despite the frantic blows dealt by Fred's left hand and Bob's vigorous fists. Dr. Dick was in the office, but the noise drew him barely in time to see his brother flung a dozen feet or more into a snowdrift. I am afraid that master smiled, it seemed to me, anyway. But he, of course, rushed to the rescue. No sooner did Fred get on his feet than he flew at that horse with the butt of a riding-whip, raining down the blows alike on the face, over the head, anywhere he could strike in his wild anger. "'I'll teach you, you wretch! I'll make you suffer!' and kindred remarks shot explosively from his mouth. Master, white to the lips, now interfered, but only conquered by superior muscle, for Fred was crazed with pain and anger. Of course— had he been a horse, he would have had to endure ten times as much suffering and injustice quietly, but he was a man, and bent on revenge. I do not think Prince did right. Indeed, he did very wrong. But he had far less than most horses had to endure. Oftimes I had seen Dr. Fred strike Ross, or the bays for nothing at all. Simply, he was out of sorts, so I could not pity him much. "'Don't call the entire neighborhood together,' said Master. "'You're acting very silly. "'Go in the house and have Nanny bathe your shoulder, "'and I will try the new horse a while. "'Bob, you may put Dandy back.' "'After considerable more fuss, Fred limped off to the house, "'and Dr. Dick stepped to Prince's head. "'Back went the latter's ears, and his lips quivered. 
Calmly, Master looked him in the eye, then began stroking his face and talking to him. He gradually quieted down, but his glance was both treacherous and distrustful. End of chapter 4 Recording by Beth Joy Detroit, Michigan